At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In the essentials, why truth. You do have your Bible. Open it up to Psalm 33. That's our passage this morning. We've declared it already. We've sung it uh, as well. But I just want to take us back to the very uh, first line of the Apostles' Creed as we as we continue this series called the Essentials. As we're as we're seeking to affirm and to remember and to to dive our hearts, to sink our hearts into the realities and the truth of who God is for us. We, we've confessed today, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But I, I would confess to you this morning, maybe you would also agree with this, that that statement might make you a little uncomfortable. To, to, to profess and to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator or maker of heaven and earth, it's one thing for us to say that, to say, I believe in God, but to ascribe to him the name Father, that, that could be difficult, let alone it might be uncomfortable for you to use a masculine term to describe God. Furthermore, to say in this world where there's so much evil and, and there's so much trouble, to, to profess that God is almighty, he is, he is in control, that he is sovereign and powerful over all things, that might feel out of place. Further then, to say and to confess in, in what many would call our modern scientific age, to, to describe to God and to say that God is the creator, the maker of all things, heaven and earth, that, that might not jive with the theories and explanations of the origin of the universe that are, that are espoused in academia and in the world at large today. So you may hear us confessing these truths, and you may wonder why in the world we should devote ourselves to someone like this. Why should Christians, why should anybody worship a God who is declared as Father, who is Almighty, who is the creator, the maker of heaven and earth? My job this morning is not to be a cultural apologist or, or one who even has all the questions that skeptics might raise about who and how we articulate who God is. My job this morning is to just take us to God's Word as a pastor and help us see God as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. And I want to answer this big question that we might have in our lives. The question is, why in the world should we worship God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? This psalm calls us to worship Him. Our text, just the first three verses, which we called ourselves to worship, to, it causes us to rejoice. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This text calls us to praise God, to worship him, to sing for who he is. And if you want biblical backing for singing loud, big praises, shouts of joy, it's right here. I think we as a church can kind of ramp that up a little bit as we sing to the Lord Sunday after Sunday. But why? Why should we sing a new song? Why should we ascribe worth to God? Why should we give thanks to Him as the Lord and the Father? 
Well, the answer in the rest of this psalm points us to who God is, and that's my hope today, is just to, just to help you get your eyes on God, to help you see Him for who He is, and, and all of His fatherly kindness, His fatherly attributes of Him, that, that we might worship Him and draw near to Him, that we, if we would embrace these things and believe these things about who God is, I think they will help fuel our worship of Him and, and will allow us and strengthen us to confess the Lord as Father, to be able to profess and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So I want to show us these three fatherly attributes of God that this psalm describes to us so that we'll draw near to Him, so that we'll worship Him. The first fatherly attribute is God's power, and it's His power, it's seen in making all things by His Word. We see him and who he is, his power as creator. He, he says this in verses 4 through 9. The word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. So let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We see God's first fatherly attribute of His power. And His power is seen in making all things by His Word. Now when you think of power, you might think of domination. Of some sort of ironclad coldness. Of just getting your way moving yourself forward in any way that you want. But, but that's not how the psalmist writes about the nature of God and the character that underlies his power. Verses 4 and 5, he says, The word of the Lord is upright. His work is done in faithfulness. God loves, the Father loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You see here, his word and his work go together. His word, what he professes, what he speaks, is upright and faithful. And that shows itself out in his works, what he does. They are right and trustworthy. There is full integrity, full purity in God's word and his work. What he says and what he does are together. And furthermore, he loves. God's heart is that he is biased toward and inclined towards righteousness and justice. God loves what is right and true and excellent and beautiful. He, he loves what is good. So verse 5 can culminate saying, The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Where you see God's righteousness, where you see goodness, where you see truth, where you see true beauty, where you see excellence, that is evidence of God's love and His steadfast faithfulness. The term here, steadfast love, is God's enduring, never giving up, never falling short, never ending, faithful love. And that's the position from which He acts towards the world. God's powerful works come from His steadfast love. So God is not a cold, indifferent, hostile power over all things. He is he's a father to us, and his fatherliness is shown in his, in his power. His power is shown in a devoted, warm, beneficial power aimed at blessing and supporting his creatures. 
Now, this is the kind of thing that would have never been said in the surrounding pagan religions of Mesopotamia, this day of this, which the psalm was written. The, the gods wouldn't operate this way. The gods didn't operate from a position of fatherly kindness towards their creation. The gods, though, they acted with indifference, full of, of just raging chaos. One scholar says the whole raft of pagan deities were capricious. One could never know what they might do or undo. And because pagan deities had such an unpredictable character, one could never be sure of anything. For the earnest pagan, the earth was not full of unfailing love, but of constant fear and never-ending uncertainty. Constant underlying anxiety. But not our God. Not God the Father. He displays His power that stands on His love by His benevolent creation of the world, by His making all things. His, his power in love shows itself out. So verse seven, 6 and 7 speak to, to God's creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That, that good word that's upright, that, that word that is true and just and faithful, that word that is full of steadfast love, by that word the Lord made the heavens. And, and by the breath of his mouth, the psalmist says, all their host. So when you look up into the sky at night, when you see the stars and the moon, when you see the galaxies, you're, you're seeing all of it issued out in love from God's mouth, from his breath. He speaks and it comes to be. He says, let there be light and it is so. And he shapes and he fashions. And so, verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. He, he, he measures out the scope and the space of the waters of the seas. He, he puts them in containers, as it were, and sets their boundaries so that the waters don't overfill and cover everything. He, he, he creates and he separates and he fills. I mean, verse 6 and 7 are just Genesis 1, really, in short verse here. But his speech carries it out. His unlimited power is expressed in his authoritative, powerful, loving word as he spoke and created all things by his magnificent power. He's made it all. You can look to the sky. You can look to the land. You can look to the animal kingdom. And there you see a God who has made everything. You can look at the image of God in one another, in every human being, and there you see God creating all things by His powerful love, by His greatness and His care. And so how do we respond to Him in that? Verse 8 and 9 tell us to respond by seeing His great power, to see His wonderful deeds, and to fearfully stand in awe of Him. So let all the earth, there's an invitation for us, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This, this fear here is not that horrified trembling at a terrible and angry being. It's not the cowering in the corner, being struck down by Him what some might call a sinful fear. But this fear that we're invited to is this jaw-dropping awe and wonder and delight in the amazing and good power of your heavenly Father. The psalmist here invites us to be like little children, 
to look up at our Father in heaven and to see all that he has made and with big grins on our face go, that's my dad. Look what he did. He's amazing. To stand in awe and delight of him. Charles Spurgeon described this fear this way. He said, in this childlike fear, there is not an atom of that fear which signifies being afraid. We we who believe in Jesus are not afraid of our Father. God forbid that we ever should be. The nearer that we can get to Him, the happier we are. Our highest wish is to be with Him forever and to be lost in Him. But still, we, we pray that we may not grieve Him. We beseech Him to keep us from turning aside from Him. We ask for His tender pity towards our infirmities and plead with Him to forgive us and deal graciously with us for His dear Son's sake. As loving children, we feel a holy awe and reverence as we realize our relationship to, who, to Him, who is our Father in heaven, as one of a dear, loving, tender, compassionate Father, our Heavenly Father. Do you stand in awe and amazement at Him, our Heavenly Father? For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Have you considered the power of God, His loving power in His creative work? He spoke and all things came to be. Again, the universe and its absolute immensity is the work of God's upright, faithful, and righteous Word. And it's a powerful Word that comes from His love. His fatherly kindness is seen in His delightful creation of the stars, the heavenly bodies. It's there in the manifold complexities and creativity of the flora and fauna of this planet. His beaming smile is seen in His structuring and crafting the land and the seas. All of this made by His Word. He is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. So the the psalmist is right. He invites us back. He says, shout to the Lord for joy, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. We should be full of worship and gladness and praise to the Lord for his fatherly kindness, his fatherly attribute of power, which is seen in the creation of the world by his word. But then the psalmist points out another attribute, the second fatherly attribute of God that will fuel our delight and worship of him. And that attribute is his wisdom, which is seen in the carrying out of his eternal plans. We have God who is the creator, but the creed calls us to confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty. What about Almighty? Well, well, the the psalmist calls us to continue to worship in verses 10 through 17. He takes us into the deliberation hall. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations. So you can just imagine all the kings, all the rulers, all the royalty, all the people in power in this this room, in this arena of, of deliberation and strategizing and planning. And they're all counseling one another. And, and the psalmist says, the Lord brings their counsel, their plans, their agendas to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord, verse 11, stands forever. The plans of his heart to all the generations. The nations, the rulers, the politicians, the structures of power, they all have their plans and their agendas. And the scripture says God just overthrows them all. He just upsets every one of them. The strategies and ambitions of the nations, their their futile plans in opposition to God, he just wipes them out. 
But God's plans, His wisdom, His decree, it's, it's never been foiled. God has never been upset. He's, he's never had a loss in his loss column. He's undefeated in every way. God's ambition, his will, his plan, his aim, it's going to happen if it hasn't happened already. It will stand. What the wisdom and designs of the Lord come from, what, what, what flow from his fatherly heart are full of love. They stand to all generations. And so friends, if you're in Christ, if you're his child, then you stand on the blessed side of his fatherly love. You, you, you get to hear verse 12, blessed is the nation or the people whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. What that verse is saying is that if God is your God, then he is your father and his blessing rests on you. You're part of his plan. You're part of his agenda for this world. And he will not be upset in what he has decreed and what he has planned. Now, just a side note here. Verse 12 is not about the United States of America. It's not a promise that if a political nation of this world gets its act together, they will be blessed by God. It's not speaking about geopolitical nations and kingdoms. What this verse is saying is if you are God's people, if you are his child being adopted into his family by the work of his son, Jesus Christ, then you've got God's good aimed right at you. You stand in the blessed category. And that's good news because anyone on this planet can get in on God's fatherly kindness and love. Anyone can get in on him. But don't bank your hope in the counsel and wisdom of this world and this, these kingdoms. Don't bank your hope in a politician or a political party. God, our Father, is there on his throne and he sees the whole scope of things. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits in thrones, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, this isn't a distant father just, just sitting on a throne looking down and going, oh, what rabble. I don't care. This is, this is the father on his throne, the king on his throne, ruling and reigning over all things. He's active in the world. He is bringing to fruition all of his plans. And so there he is. There's no hidden conspiracy that he isn't aware of. There's no backroom deal that's happening that God isn't privy to. There's no secret agenda that will upset or foil his plans. He's fashioned our hearts. He, he knows human nature intimately. He sees it all. He sees everything. And in his wisdom, all of it is going exactly according to plan for the good of his children. So the invitation for us as his children is not to trust in kingdoms or politics of this world. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue you. These kingdoms of this world, they won't save you. In match to God and his power, they're weak and impotent. But grab a hold of the wisdom of God. Look at his wisdom. In God's wisdom, he defeated the pride of this world by sending his son to die as a substitute in our place. In God's wisdom, he delivered up his son, Jesus, as Acts 2 says, according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He, he delivered up Jesus to crucifixion in order to raise him up on the third day so that Christ would stand as Lord and Savior for all who trust in him. It was God's wisdom that determined that all who place their hope in Him 
All who place their hope in Christ would be rescued and saved from their sins. Salvation doesn't go to the extremely righteous, nor does it go to the ones who do all the good deeds, nor does salvation go to the ones who earn their way and perform well. But God's salvation goes to the weak and to the humble, to those who who are pitiable and who, who humbly come to Him and cast their whole lives on His mercy alone, who say, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. That's right where his mercy and grace goes. God's wisdom confounds the wise, and he accomplishes his eternal plans. No one will thwart God. Brothers and sisters, your heavenly Father cares for you. His plans are for your good and flourishing, and he will not be thwarted in carrying them out. So go back to the beginning of the psalm with me. Let's get this in our hearts and in our heads. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Worship him. Adore him. Give thanks to your Father in heaven. The Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, worship him for his fatherly greatness and care and love. So the psalm is showing us three attributes of God's fatherly kindness. First of all, his his power, and it's seen in his creation of the world by his word. And secondly, his wisdom in seeing his wisdom is seen in carrying out his eternal plans. And so the psalmist takes us to one more fatherly attribute of God. And it helps fuel our worship. That is, it's his love. And his love is seen in delivering those who hope in him. Maybe you wonder. You say, okay, I believe in God. I'll call him Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I'll I'll agree with that. But maybe you wonder, well, what do I have to do to get his attention? What do I have to do to get the attention of this wise, powerful, almighty Creator? How do I have to get in? What do I have to do to get in on his, his fatherliness for me? Maybe you struggle to see and worship God and call him father because you, your experience of a father has been a poor one. Maybe, maybe you've always felt like you've had to walk on eggshells with your dad and, and you had to be perfect for him to like you, let alone to love you. Maybe your experience has been one of those of having to perform greatly, to be, to be excellent in every way, and to do excellent for your father, just so you could hear him say, I'm proud of you. I love you. Maybe your view of the fatherhood of God is difficult because your, your father is gone or, or out of reach and has very little to say in your life, very little access to you or you to him, no time for you at all. He's just distant, gone. I'm sorry if you're one who has had a painful and difficult experience of fatherhood from our earthly fathers. But know that God the Father, the Heavenly Father, does not relate to His children in that way. His love, His love defines His fatherliness. He is love. So, so the question is, who, who has God the Father's attention? Who are His eyes set on? It's answered in verse 18. Behold, the eyes of the Lord... God's gaze, the the, the gaze of the Father, it's here. It's on those who who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. Do do you see it there? Those who bank their life, who hope on on His love, who desire it, who draw near to it, who cling to it, who, who run towards it, 
Whoever has their life banked on his fatherly kindness and love have God the Father's glad, smiling, delighted gaze upon you. That is to say, if you're looking for God the Father to be your salvation, your rescue, your supply, your sufficiency, the one to protect you and keep you, the one to cause you to flourish as his child, guess what? You're looking in the right place. Because God the Father is full of loving kindness. He is full of fatherly goodness. And here's how he's displayed and shown that love. By delivering all those who hope in him. Let me take you to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates, he shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, for all who believe on Jesus Christ, all who trust in the God, all who trust in God the Father's mercy, all of those who cast themselves on Him, good news is the love and grace and blessing of God rests on you. God the Father is not angry against you. He's not filled with wrath looking to destroy you when you mess up and sin. His, his heart is not uninterested or disassociating with you because you've sinned or ruined, in your mind, his perfect record. He's not distant and distracted because you're a needy and weak nuisance. The Father's affection is positively set towards you. He looks over you with his smile, with his joy, with his gladness, Hear the words of the gospel. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And and what shall we say to all these things? If God the Father is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him, with Christ, give us all things? As Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're looking, if your eyes are set to Him, if you're hoping in His steadfast love, that he may deliver you from death and keep you alive, sustain you in the famines of this world. You're looking in the right place. And the psalm concludes with two terms that help us understand what does it mean to hope in his steadfast love? What does it mean to rely on his steadfast love? In verse 20 is the first term, we wait. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That is, we expect and anticipate and yearn for Him. We long for Him. We desire Him. And we do this because He is the help, not the things of this world, not the kingdoms of this world. He is the protector, our shield, not the securities that this life offers us on our bank accounts or politicians or pleasure or anything. He alone We wait on Him because He is our shield, our protector, our help. We wait. That's the first way we hope. The second way is that we rejoice. Verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21. For our heart is glad in Him 
because we trust in his holy name. Do you see that? The Christian should be full of joy and gladness, even happiness, because we're trusting him. Our lives should be radiant with joy and rejoicing because he's trustworthy and we believe it. His name as Father delights us. What other God would be so close to his worshipers that they could call him Father? What other one comes so near to us that that Jesus teaches us and says, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven. Our heart is glad in him. Why? Because we trust him. We trust in his holy name. We take hold of our heavenly Father and say, you have nothing but good for me, even though this world may have hard things for me, and even though that might be discipline and correction and shaping for me, you will ultimately have nothing but good for me, and I trust you. I believe you. My heart is glad in you because of who you are as my heavenly Father. That's God for us. And he's happy and pleased and delighted in us so that we can be happy and pleased and delighted in him. So what do we do? Verse 22, we hope, we live, and we bank our lives on him, and the blessing falls on us. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, let your fatherly love and kindness, your goodness for us in every way, may that be upon us even as we hope in you. You put your faith and hope in him, he won't disappoint. So here's the question I've been trying to answer Why should we worship God as our Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? It's because God, our Father, gives us every reason to worship Him. His fatherly kindness is the well from which He he aims His love at us and says, come and worship and delight yourself in me. His fatherly attributes of power and wisdom and love are all aimed at our good and our well-being. They're displayed in His steadfast love in his work of sending his son for us. So, so brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in him. Let the praise of God sound from our lips and lives because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. May, may we not confess the Apostles' Creed with cold and indifferent hearts, but when we say, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, may, may gladness and joy and hope in him stir up in our hearts. Maybe you'll be able to say with the psalm, shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits. It's part of who we are as upright people. So we can give thanks to the Lord with the lyre or the guitar. We can make melody to him with the keyboard. We can sing to him a new song. We can play skillfully on the drums with loud shouts. Let the worship of God, our Father, fill our hearts. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.